Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and on today's episode, we're sharing a webinar that we co-hosted with the founders of Law School Data, aka LSD. We invited audience members to share their scores, GPA and LSAT. We chanced them on LSD, then asked them for context, their soft factors. Finally, we asked our admissions consultants to qualify the LSD results based on what they just learned. The discussion shed a lot of light on the factors that affect your chances of admission. The discussion shed a lot of light on the factors that affect your chances of admission. Enjoy. For everyone who came, thank you so much. We're really, really glad to have you. This is our Chance Me webinar. It's a joint venture between Seven Sage and LSD. I'm David. I'm a partner at Seven Sage, and I'm just going to let everybody introduce themselves. Let's start with Jaron and then Dinan. Hi, I'm Jaron. I'm a half of the LSD team. I've been working, Din and I have been working together for about a year and a half now, and I'm you know, really excited to be here. Awesome. Dinan? My name's Dinan. It rhymes with linen. I'm the other half of the LSD team. I'm a 3L right now and wrapping up my, my final semester because I took the semester off because of COVID. Cool. Okay. Jake and Susan? I'm a consultant at Seven Sage, and prior to that, I was on the admissions committee and an admissions officer at Columbia Law School, and I'm also an attorney. I went to Columbia Law School. And hey, I'm Jake Bask. I'm one of the admissions consultants at Seven Sage, and prior to that, I served as the director of admissions and financial aid at Notre Dame Law School, where I regularly used law school data and previously law school numbers. LSD is better. All right. <laughs> yes. Endorsement from the top. Yeah. Didn't you guys make LSD? Actually, let's just start there. Dan and Jaron, why, why did you make LSD? Uh, so <laughs> LSD is a passion project that grew out of a Reddit request thread, actually. People got really annoyed at having to log into like 20 different status checkers. So they asked someone to make an automated status checker. And I, I threw myself into this passion project as I was anxiously waiting for my own app results. And it turns out that people really like LSD. I didn't realize that the status checker was the genesis. Cool. Well, yeah, that sounds like a good way to while away your own time while you are waiting for your results to come in. So. Let's just dive in. I think I'm going to share my screen and I want to look at the LSD chance me tool with you. I'll have you walk us through it. Then I'll say, I'll ask you a few questions. I'll talk about the seven stage tool. We'll look at the LSAC tool for a little bit. And then I think we can just have some fun chancing people from the audience. So let me share my screen. All right. So here it is. LSD law chance me. So, hey, someone in the chat, just someone want in the chat want to throw out a random LSAT and GPA score and we'll just start there. We got a 3.9 and a 165 from Sophia. 3.9165. All right, so I guess I click this. So we see Harvard. Din, and how do I chance myself for other schools? Is the best way to look down here? Yeah, sure. Or on the homepage, there's also a drop down for the school. So okay. if you wanted to chance yourself for Notre Dame, for example. Let's do it. Let's look at Notre Dame. Hey, Jake, what do you think? I want you to throw out a percentage here. Ooh, so 39165, that's GPA splitter town. So, you know, what else is in play? Resume, geographic diversity, racial diversity, et cetera. So, I'm going to go with like 25%. 25%. Okay. Let's see how we did. Pretty good. Hey, I think that's within the margin of error. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the question is whether Jake is wrong or whether LSD is wrong. Jake, the former <laughs> assistant director or director of Notre right. Dame. Okay. So anyway, so we have this and then Din and down here, we have this table and it, it looks like it just shows everybody who applied. And then does this dark, bold line mean that more people were rejected? And then when we get down here, the dark green means more people were accepted. 
Exactly. So as, as you go further down the list, you'll see that I think you have much better chances at those schools. And so this list that you're seeing is essentially your chance fee for every school that we have similar applicants data for. So what the, the chance fee tool does is it, it takes your GPA and LSAT and it searches the entire database for other LSD users with similar stats. Mm-hmm. And then once we found that pool of users, we check their results for this, the schools that you wanted to get chance for and show the results. And does this look at every user who has ever submitted a result or are you looking at a certain range? So we're, it looks within a certain range. So if it looks, I think within like a three point LSAT range and a 0.1 GPA range. Oh, I meant a user, like when they applied. Oh yeah. It's within the last five cycles, I think. Although I do need to narrow that range because (laughs) the last couple cycles have been unusual, to say the least. Right, right. Okay. Last five cycles. And then it looks like if you click advanced, you can narrow this down more. I want to look at these tiers together with Susan and Jake, but we'll get to that in a second. So I can filter if I have 10 plus years of experience I can compare myself only to users with 10 plus years of experience. And then I guess like this is sort of how you're checking the data, right? You have these unknown things. So if we don't want anything to be unknown, we click these out. Otherwise, just everything is included, right? Exactly. So if if they didn't put in how much work experience they have, then those applicants would also show up in your search. Okay. And so the results are different, but now it looks a little less trustworthy since, since there are so few results. But it's nice that you show us, you know, what the denominator is. Okay, so that's super straightforward. I also want to talk to you about whether you have like a critique that I hear a lot about our predictor, not so much yours, but I don't know, maybe it applies to yours too, is like, oh, it's internet data. You can't trust it at all. I know that you're not interviewing everybody who signs up for LSD, but do you guys have any thoughts on like the trustworthiness of this or whether people are, I don't know, over-reporting acceptances or anything like that? I mean, do you really think someone would do that? Just go on the internet and tell lies? But I've heard uh, it's I've heard it's happened. No, seriously. I, I think generally speaking, the self-reported stats are quite accurate. So we've actually done a lot of work on the back end to make sure that the stats are good. There's software filtering on the back end, and there's a whole bunch of deliberate user interface choices to encourage accurate reporting, actually, that maybe you noticed, maybe you haven't. But even though LSD is all about comparing yourself to your peers and like gauging where you are, LSD actually has like zero leaderboards. It would be super cool to see like who received the most acceptances last year or like if some one got more than $3 million worth of aggregate scholarships or something, but that would encourage bad data reporting. And so we're making active choices not to to have those leaderboards to nudge people towards accuracy. What are you doing on the back end to try to, you know, ensure the integrity of the data? I mean, there's, there's basic stuff. Um, like if you report that you have a 120 LSAT and say that you got into Yale, we just ignore that. There's more advanced stuff that I'm not going to go into because that would just explain how to bypass our systems, but they mm-hmm. exist. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I presumably you you do want to let like the unicorn who has a low LSAT score who did get into Yale for some reason, you want to show that. So I don't know, is it hard to find that line of like what's BS and what's like just plausible? I think we just err towards being overly permissive and, you know, everyone knows that people will go on the internet and lie. So take the data with a grain of salt, use your best judgment. Yeah. I think we, I mean, another thing that LSD does very well is we allow people to search through other users. So you can actually identify these users in our charts and graphs and you can say, hey, this person who says they have a 155 and a 3.2 and got into Yale, what else is that person saying about themselves? Sometimes they have, that person might have straight grains, meaning they got into the 40 schools they applied to. We might flag that. 
That makes sense. Well, obviously you have earned the trust of a lot of people if Jake is using it in Notre Dame admissions office. Jake, what did you use the tool for? Are you trying to see what other schools are up to? A lot of things. Yeah, it just kind of depended on the time of year. So for example, if it was scholarship model season, I'm building my scholarship model. And a lot of this is dictated on our goals, our applicant pool, our money, etc. But it's also good to get a sense of what are other schools doing? Okay, and in two ways, what are they shooting for median stat wise? Okay, so for example, can I already start to see the kind of the what I call on law school data, like the right angle of doom developing on the LSAT and the GPA for that school. So I know, okay, if this is one of our main peer schools or main overlap schools, it looks like they're shooting for the same LSAT as they've done before, or actually at least right now they're shooting a little bit higher. So I'm taking that into account and then also trying to see roughly, basically, can I retcon their scholarship model and figure out what are they doing and where are they allocating money? And is it basically what we've seen in the past? Okay, so everything's normal. Or are one of the schools that I have to care about as far as being a key overlap for us, are they doing something drastically different that I should be aware of and at least flag that for the purposes of bringing to the attention of our our admissions committee or our scholarship committee, etc. So that's more like winter. But then into the waitlist season, occasionally I'm trying to get a sense of what else is everyone else doing as far as waitlist admits go. I'm seeing that... Harvard has just taken four admitted students, or actually this is when I'm taking multiple things into account. I'm on the subreddit. I see people posting, I got into Harvard off the wait list. Like, oh man, let me see what their stats are. Okay, where were these kids previously deposited? And I know that law school data is a small subset, but if I'm seeing Harvard's going high LSAT, there's going to be a trickle down effect that's eventually going to come to me. That's good for me to file away. Susan, did you ever use this in your time in admissions? We didn't really use it at Columbia. We sort of had our own data that we used, and there were maybe three or four schools that we really, really paid attention to that were our competitors. And, you know, Jake mentioned Harvard. Harvard would often take people from us, like after a deposit deadline in May. So we had direct knowledge of what those those scores were. And then, you know, for us, the scholarship competition was largely like from U Chicago or NYU, and we really knew what they were doing each year. So we had a sort of smaller pool that we were looking at, but we were definitely, you know, tracking the numbers. And, you know, I would say something that Jake mentioned, we would look at, you know, the applicant pool for that year, and we would measure sort of score bands where they were at different points of the year and compare them to where they were last year. So, you know, we would look at, you know, what our applicant pool sort of looked like in, say, in September and then again in December and then in, in you know February or something. And, and we would track those sort of high LSAT bands and high GPA bands. And that's sort of how we approached it. So the other sources of data are LSAC and then what applicants are, are telling you, applicants that you admitted that we already, yes. Uh-huh. Like applicants would come to us, you know, for instance, with offers from NYU for scholarships and NYU would give them like two weeks <laughs> to make a decision. So, or scholarships were given out by Chicago or Penn or something like that. So that was sort of like how we operated. Yeah. Okay, cool. It is so interesting to hear what goes on behind the scenes. So before Didn goes, I want to look at the soft tiers because I hear a lot of people talking about these now. So Din and Jaren, can you just give us a little rundown here and tell us the genesis of these tiers and how much stock you put in them? Yeah, soft tiers are super controversial. And if you scroll up on that page just a little bit, you'll see in big, bold, red letters, it says, don't take the tiers too seriously. Mm-hmm. 
the page tries to explain what softs are. Your GPA and LSAT are your hard fat. Softs are like everything else and they're not quantifiable. The admissions committee looks at your application holistically, but I mean, we all like to compare ourselves to each other. And so the soft stats just try to give you a frame of reference for how to quantify the entire rest of your life into a single moment. And it's very rough. It's not great. The admissions committee definitely doesn't boil you down to like a single number of soft tier two, but it still gives a frame of reference. People think that, you know, being in a school club in college is more important than it actually is to admissions committees. And so this this soft tier tells you maybe you're not so hot being in a club. Sorry. Jake, Susan, what did how did you guys think about softs as you were? I mean, I don't know if you called them softs, but how did you think about all this stuff when you were admitting people? I mean, like we really did read every application as hard as that is believed, the thousands of applications we had. And I would say the quants sort of like we didn't have any grid ins or cutoffs or anything like that, but they sort of as an admissions reader, they would sort of situate the applicants in your mind, like whether they were sort of in the range of it being admissible or not. And then the soft factors could push someone over or somebody could have quants that were even over your 75th quartile and then they write like a personal statement that has with a really negative tone or maybe they have a really light resume and so then they don't get admitted. I think, you know, factors starts as like demographics like definitely mattered. You know, you could write a really compelling, you know, personal statement and that could push you over the edge if you were, you know, way off sort of our medians that wouldn't necessarily, you know, get you in. But if you were just, you know, sort of in the, in the kind of range, the soft factors really did matter a lot. The personal statements were, you know, our favorite things to read. The resume was really important. And the letters recommendations really just sort of confirmed what you were thinking about the applicant. If you did read a letter recommendation that was sort of mediocre, then that might tell you that maybe it's not so great. But, you know, I would say certainly things like I'm looking on the list, like military service did matter a lot. We always noted Rhodes Scholars. You know, we noted Phi Beta Kappa. Certainly I'm seeing like NCAA athlete, like that would, that is something that we would note when we wrote notes to each other. So these things, you know, did come into play and they did matter, but they're not going to get someone in that's just completely out of range, sort of quant wise. Yeah. And just to add on to that, yeah, effectively, like the example of the 39165 that we had a little bit ago on the chance meet, who were those 29% who were admitted? Here you go. I mean, people who are really going to contribute to the class add something a little bit different to matters. These are the key differentiating factors beyond the stats. And to throw this out there, I mean, for those of you who may be feeling really bad, like, wow, I haven't served in the military, done any legal internships or congressional internships, I'd argue that you know we, we did something similar as far as trying to create a rubric for a student's non-academic side of things, just so that way we could talk in some shorthand. The bell curve continues down. So like that tier four is kind of like the middle of the bell curve. I would classify that as like, oh, that's a pretty solid resume for certainly the Notre Dames of the world, if not a little bit higher. This then there are tiers beyond that too. So tier five and tier six are not defined here, but I assure you they exist from reading applications many, many times over. And those tier five and tier six students, why are they admitted? Usually because of, of high statistical quality, that their their stats are so high. And if the app pool is such that you 
you just need them. You know, that's something to keep in mind. And, and one last note, too. The reason we did this is not just for selection purposes on the front end, but also to help us hone in on the best candidates off the wait list. Because on the wait list, you may know we need to enroll an extra 20 students. We have a preference for high GPA or high LSAT as far as the stats go. But we want the best students who can bring leadership, experience, etc. We can either reread all of our notes all over again, or we can use our shorthand that we've developed. And so it becomes really useful in that regard. So it sounds like, you know, while, of course, as Dinan himself noted, you're not actually quantifying everybody's tiers. There's there's some truth to this idea of, of quantified softs. Yeah. So like if you look at a school's law school chart, law school data chart, who are those green dots who aren't helping the stats? There are people with those kinds of, of softs, you know, people who are really going to contribute to the discussion and debate in a Socratic environment. The people with the Purple Heart and they were Rhodes Scholars and they developed a multi-million dollar startup, but now they're going to law school. <laughs> yeah, this is suspect. The applicant yeah. is suspect. I'll just say, you know, conversely, I think I sort of said this. If you have, you know, in my time, you could have a 180 at a 4.0. And if you've done nothing and there's nothing on your resume and your personal statement is not compelling, like we wouldn't admit you. So that's just something to keep in mind too. Like the soft factors can can play against you if you don't have sort of a certain you know level of of involvement or sophistication in your personal statement at certain schools. Mm-hmm. Sure. I guess my mental model of admissions is like you sort of when you're reading a file, it's like okay, you reserve judgment, you look at the numbers, you make an initial judgment on the numbers if they are like right on the cusp, really right on the cusp, like. Maybe, you know, the softs and everything can just nudge them over the top. On the other hand, it's not exactly, I I don't think the converse is true, it sounds like. If you're really high, then everything can sort of torpedo you. So it seems like a lot of individual factors have much more power to hurt you than to help you. I think that's true, but I think most people that are having like good grades and had a successful college career have something, you know, that they've been involved with and something that they can write about. It's just occasionally you do get that person that just didn't do anything else except for school and maybe is a little bit snarky in their personal statement. But I think, you know, for the most part, if you have quants that are pretty high, you know, if you've had some involvement and you have something that's sort of moderately like interesting that you can say and you have have something, you know, some things on your resume, then then you would tend to get in. Whereas if you were sort of on the border of the quants, you would need to have those soft factors would need to be a little bit more exciting. So, so there's a couple of questions in the uh, Q&A that are near and dear to my heart about splitters and non-traditional students. Do you weigh the rest of the app more heavily in those instances is what the questions are asking. Jake, if you want to take this, but I'll just say like splitters and non-traditional applicants are maybe a little bit different. With splitters, if you have, you know, I guess it depends on sort of how high your GPA is. If you have a really great GPA and your your LSAT is maybe between the 25th quartile and the 50th quartile, like that might be something if you throw in some good soft factors that, you know, you, you could get admitted if you're sort of like really like a very low say LSAT and high GPA or the reverse than for us like at Columbia like we wouldn't necessarily take you and then um, non-traditional students you know that can be a bonus that's something that you are bringing to the table where you would contribute to the classroom and have a different way of looking at things so that's actually something that could be great like we frequently would take people that you know started at a junior college and then sort of worked their way up or something like that. 
adding on to what Susan said, because certainly same deal, you just because you're not high on both statistics doesn't mean you're not going to be competitive for admission, because if everyone was high on both stats, then we would all have 180 medians and 4.0 medians, etc. Inherently, there are going to be a lot of splitters in both directions who are going to enroll at the end of the day. And who are they? It's like Susan mentioned, you know, the people who are really going to contribute to the classroom discussion. I also want to add on there that there are a couple other factors at play, too. One is timeline. Okay. Did you apply a little bit earlier in the process when we have more flexibility to admit students who are a little lower academically? Also, the narrative of your application, the larger fit for the law school. If you're in that competitive range with a high GPA and a lower LSAT, what are the tie-breaking factors? It may be resume. It may be that it's now February and we just don't have that many spaces left for students in the statistical range. But it also could just be the student where when we read their application, we realize this absolutely is a perfect fit for our mission at this law school. We're not going to see a whole lot of students who are exactly like this. Kind of a benchmark I had for our admissions committee was, am I going to feel more embarrassed if we miss our medians by one student or more embarrassed when the dean comes to me and says, why didn't we take this student? And if I feel confident about that, then I'm okay admitting that student because of the strength of the softs, because of the strength of everything else, because of the narrative of their application, what they bring to the field. Are there literal cases, though, where you're looking at a file and you're looking at your median and you're saying, if I admit this student, my median goes... Only on waitlist season, only that far into things. So this is more of a thought experiment that I'd give to our admissions committee, because you can imagine with a lot of professors, they're sitting around hemming and hawing, and these are law professors. They just love chewing on these minute little details. But at some point, we either got to admit, waitlist, or deny. So guys, hey, if the dean is yelling at me, what is he or she yelling at me about? Because I can't believe we didn't take this kid, or because we missed our you know, we're at a 3.80 median GPA instead of a 3.81 GPA. What do you guys think? Yeah, just to complicate things a little bit more, the GPA, like we would sort of look at the whole transcript. So, you know, I think, you know, people are pretty familiar that we look at it trends. So if you had your GPA is a little bit low, but you have a solid LSAT, but you had, you know, a sort of a, a rough start to college and then you found your footing and you've done really well since then, then that might tip you over. Or if you had, you know, you're an addendum and there was, you know, maybe you had mono or death in your family or something like that one semester and that sort of impacted your GPA, that might make a difference. Or let's say you were a STEM student or you went to certain schools like Princeton or UChicago sometimes is, is a tough grader and certain things. So that's something that we would consider also. Well, so I thought it'd be really fun if we actually just chance some people. If we, I really like it if people raise their hands and talk to us. We like to hear your voices. We can take questions from the Q&A, but I'm going to prefer people who raise their hands. So we're going to start, I'll start with Joseph, but Joseph, here's what I want to do. Tell us the numbers first, then let's just plug them in. We'll plug them into LSD. We'll plug them into 7 Stage, and we'll plug them into the LSAC's tool as well. And then maybe you can give us some context and Susan and Jacob can contextualize the raw predictions. So go ahead. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. And thanks for having me. It is a 3.0 GPA and a 172 on the LSAT. All right. And what school do you want to look at for LSD? I'd like to look at the University uh, of Texas or the University of California at Berkeley. Okay. Let's go with Texas. So I'll plug that in. And then I'm also going to, I'll plug it into our tool as well. 172. And sorry, what was the GPA again? Three flat. Okay. And then LSAC has this tool as well. So let's plug it in there. All right. So let's see what we got. 
LSD. So waitlist, I, I think we can probably take this as as a rejection, unfortunately. I would guess that a lot of people put in a waitlist. And of course, most people who are waitlisted aren't accepted, and maybe they just never update it to being rejected. But it's not a huge number of applicants, it looks like, at UT Austin. So we'll go to Seven Sage, and we are more optimistic, at least in October. And then this goes down. And I'll say a little something about our model too in a second. 21% by December. And then let's see, I don't actually know if Texas is in this or not. 5%. So this actually accords perfectly with LSD, which is really interesting. Joseph, give us the sauce. Very non-traditional, eight years work experience, very much a narrative of application around disability in the law, worked at in the private sector and public sector and disability inclusion work. And I have a disability myself. Strong letters of recommendation, although it sounds like those are fairly irrelevant. Do you live in Texas? I don't know. I'm, I'm from New York, which hurts me on a whole bunch of levels. Susan, Jacob, do you have any other questions or any thoughts about the other stuff might contextualize the numbers? I guess I'm curious, like with your sort of transcripts. Oh, I'm sorry, Jacob. Like no, where you like if there was like an upward trend or did you have bad, like you said, non-traditional, like when you were younger, did you have worse grades or was it pretty much, you know, study or GPA? There was an upward trend and there was definitely an outlier semester that had some health complications. And I have weighed whether or not to write an addendum there. Generally, though, I just didn't work too hard in my undergrad because I just needed the degree in my eyes. I wasn't thinking about law school as a potential next step. So, yeah, Joseph, if we had spoken with you eight years ago when you graduated from undergrad, Susan and I would have laid out just this path in front of you. Like, what is going to be the path towards admission at one of the top schools with a lower GPA? It's going to be doing really well in the LSAT, which for the purposes of Berkeley and UT, you're certainly you're above their medians and, and above the medians that Berkeley has published for this year and where per law school data, UT Austin was shooting for their class for this coming for this year as well. But then also go out there and get work experience. What are you going to add to the classroom? Okay, so at the end of the day, I don't know if that 5% is horribly inaccurate on both pages. But who are those 5%? I would say folks who kind of fit that profile. And then it is about the narrative and giving the explanation and giving the context for how what went into your undergraduate record and how is that no longer relevant, but your 172 is relevant. Right. So this is a sorry, Susan, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so, I mean, given Joseph's soft factors, like I would think he would have a slightly better than 5% chance of getting in. Like I wouldn't say it's like 50% or something, but I would think that it's higher than 5%. Yeah, don't buy like a ton of burnt orange right now. Maybe put that on your Christmas list, but yeah. But Thank you all so much. It. Yeah, good luck. I was just going to say everyone has already made this point, but you know, this is of course not showing what your chances are. This is showing how other LSD applicants have done. There's a little disclaimer right here. You know, we call the seven stage predictor a predictor, but it's actually just a client on top of LSD's data and LSN's data. Not exactly a client, but we we based it on LSD. But instead of just asking how many people went to how many, you know, how, what percent of the people who applied to Texas with these stats got in or with similar stats, we built a linear regression, which tries to model the interaction between your LSAT score and how early you apply and being a URM and applying ED and being international. This, this, by the way, is also using data through 2021. So it doesn't include 2022. So it's a lot of these, a lot of the coefficients for these schools are probably coming from easier cycles. So we do need to update it. I think one thing this probably is good for is, is just showing, like giving you a sense of how much 
applying early matters relatively. I, I didn't make it and I don't really understand the math, but I was there when the statistician was making it. And he was like very concerned with making sure everything was valid, which is one reason why we don't have a model for each school. He didn't think that there was enough data for each school. So he was looking at how much these factors tend to affect your chances in the aggregate. And that's why I think sort of like these intervals between November and December, or like what happens when you click the ED, you know, is maybe one of the more important takeaways from our predictor. Uh, and it did actually start as a way to explore how different factors affect your admissions rather than as a tool to like guess how you would do at every, any given school. Uh, meanwhile, I would guess that LSAC has more data than either of us, but I, I don't have any idea how they make their model. If I can add one thing, David, too, just in terms yeah. of especially the LSD tool. And part of this is, and Joseph, this is for you, but really for everybody in terms of we're not trying to tell you necessarily what your chances are, as David said, but really to compare your stats to others at different schools. So if UT Austin is your your dream school for some reason beyond just your likelihood of getting in, that's amazing. But we also want to encourage everybody to really like reconsider what your reach schools are because your chances, at least according to LSD, of getting into UT Austin is maybe worse than getting into what what would be a higher ranking school. And I think we're we're all very likely to potentially not set our sights high, especially people who came from disadvantaged backgrounds in any way. And I think um, we can all do a little bit to reach more than we might think is possible. And our hope with creating this chance me tools to encourage people to do that because your chances at UT Austin might be 5%. If we ran it again at, you know, a T14, it, there would be schools where it was higher. So just something to keep in mind. Yeah. Thanks, Jaron. You know, it's true. Like the one thing I can predict with hundred percent certainty is that you won't get in if you don't apply. And obviously that goes for everyone at any school. And I think that you'll find that once you fill out some applications, the marginal effort of applying to a few more schools is not that high. So it, it is worth it. Okay, let's... Just to jump in real quick, two things. Sure. Uh, one, I hear the baby crying, so I'm going to have to jump. But also, if you do look, scroll down on the law school data chance, me, you'll see that there's a 50% chance of getting in to Washington University in St. Louis, which is ranked higher than UT Austin. Exactly what Jaron said. Like maybe, maybe aim higher, maybe aim for different schools, but shoot your shot. Thanks, Thank Anna. you all so much. Hey, Katie. Hi. So my stats are 3.68 for undergrad and the highest I've gone in the LSAT is 156. And I'm looking at Boston University. Boston? Yeah, Boston. All right. Let's use this too. Okay. So LSD is giving you... Not a great chance because it looks like no one was accepted with these numbers. Let's see. Seven Sage. Oh, I put in 168. I think is the GPA off? Was it the GPA was 368? Yeah, it says 368. 368, 156. Is that right? Okay. So Seven Sage is giving you a 10% chance. And Boston College. I'm not seeing BU here. Okay. All right. So now give us the context, Katie. I'm an AmeriCorps member and I went to BU for undergrad. I'm also, I won a few like competitions with my Mac mediation team and I'm only like one year out of college, but I am a low income, first generation student. Mm -hmm. So Susan, Jacob, you know, how, how do these sorts of factors affect a decision being low income, you know, AmeriCorps, applying to the law school where you went to undergrad. Yeah, and, and they, they can matter. They really do. So in the case of BU, like the predictor saying on law school data, there aren't any green dots over in that range uh, in that exact area. 
I wouldn't be surprised if we see some green dots who are in that neck of the woods. And ultimately, once you're below a school's medians, it doesn't matter if you're three points low, five points low, as long as you're within a range where a school is going to feel like you're going to do well academically, okay? Because it hurts the stats in the same way. But there are going to be some people admitted, and who are they? I mean, you just checked off a couple of those boxes as far as service, leadership, conversation in the classroom, providing opportunities to first-gen low-income students, etc. Speaking of the alumni angle of matters, so I was a director of admissions at a school that is known for being very alumni-heavy, but at least at the law school, that wasn't a heavy consideration per se. I think it was a bit of a chicken and the egg thing that we had a lot of Notre Dame undergrad alums apply. They were all really great. A lot of them were admitted. They were not admitted because of being a Notre Dame alum. They were admitted because, yeah, they did well academically. They, they've really done well professionally. They're competitive for us. And, and, you know, we'd be happy to have them back home. They know all the cheers for the football game so they can teach everyone else. Yeah, I would just agree with everything that that Jake said. And, you know, AmeriCorps is something that we always put in our notes, you know, in similar service organizations and first gen, we always noted first generation. So those are definitely soft factors that would help your application. I think, you know, for us, it did provide maybe like a, a hair of a boost being from the same university. And that was Really just because if you had done fairly well there, you know, or really well, I guess, with your academics, we knew that you were going to be able to handle the rigor of the law school. And then we also felt like you knew what our school was about and sort of our location and things like that. And so um, it seemed that, you know, possible that you would come if you were admitted. So I guess in your case with with BU, I'm not exactly sure how they handle it, but certainly your your 368 is a strong GPA. It might be below their medians, I'm not sure, but still it shows that you're like a solid student and could do well academically. Well, good luck, Katie. Thank you. A quick, a quick defense of the zero percent on LSD. I just want to, you know, the purpose of the model, the purpose of the tool is really to allow self exploration. So, you know, you can drag those bars in the bottom hand all the way to the left, and you can see not only are the people who happen to be within three points of me, but the people who are, you know, maybe five points higher on the LSAT, or people who are up to twenty points lower on LSAT and all the way to a 0.0 GPA. And that it really gives a sense of were people accepted, not just what's my chance, but really getting into these individuals and seeing where else they applied and maybe using that for some inspiration of where else to apply yourself. Thanks, Jaren. Hey, Lisa. Hi. So my numbers are GPA is 2.61 and 163 LSAT. Okay. And I guess we can look at CUNY. Waitlisted, but there's only one applicant on LSD. Mm-hmm with similar numbers. We're saying your chances are 75%, although they it's like they go down to 43% at the bottom. Okay. Actually, even before we get the context, Jake, Susan, does this look plausible to you? So I think if you go to, and, and this is where, admittedly, I, I tend to use the charts more on law school data because just visually, it helps me see that even if there's not a 163 with that low of a GPA. There was a 162 with a 29. You know, there was a 164 with a 30, and it gives me a little more perspective on that. And so, being that far over their median on the LSAT and being low on the GPA, you know, I think that gets you in the game, at least for a conversation. But then the questions are going to be okay, so why was the GPA so low? When was that? Was it consistently low? Did it start out very low with an upward trend? What were you majoring in, et cetera? And then what have you done professionally and personally as well to balance that out? So, 
I'm probably somewhere between Law School Data and Seven Sage on that one. But I think you got a ticket to the game. Lisa, do you want to give us some context? Yeah, so I am definitely a non-traditional applicant as well. I graduated in 2015, and I plan to write a GPA addendum about this. I had a really hard time in college. As I was starting out my college journey, I found out that I was adopted and that my mother was unfortunately a victim of domestic violence. And, you know, my entire time was pretty shaky. Uh, I went from one semester in academic probation to two years later being on the dean's list. It wasn't a perfect trajectory, but a little bit. Since I've graduated, I've worked full time as a journalist and an editor, you know, leading people on teams, being in national magazines. And definitely, I like to think, you know, proving myself career-wise. And a decade on, as I've been doing this profession and I'm looking to do something that I think is more important to me. And 10 years after, you know, that news, I really want to go to law school specifically to do public interest, which is why I was looking at CUNY and possibly, you know, work in family law and help other people and use that experience to guide my legal career, hopefully. I mean, to me, I think that those sort of soft factors are all, um, you know, excellent and would make you a really a compelling candidate despite your lower GPA. I think your 163 combined with your becoming on the dean's list and then your experience as a journalist would really point to the fact of your, you know, your ability to do well in law school. And then I think you also show resilience through what you went through in college and sort of where you are now and what you've been able to accomplish. And I think you have a really compelling why law sort of argument. So I think to me, you would have, you know, a greater chance than what's sort of showing up on that LSD. I'd be excited to read your application, Lisa. What sort of a discount do applicants get for low GPAs who have been out of college for a long time? Well, I mean, it's it's acknowledging that that's less predictive. If it's been a long time, then the LSAT is probably going to be a little bit more predictive than the GPA. Or if there's some graduate work in the meantime as well. Although graduate work doesn't factor into a school's median GPA, it's, it's still information that we're processing, obviously. But like Susan and I have been saying, you know, it's all about the context, too. And, and a context on on this is, gosh, that's a very understandable reason for being a bit for your academic career to start out a bit on the wrong foot as an undergraduate student. And having that information when looking at your GPA helps us to understand where you started, where you come from, and then how that trajectory changed. And that's a little bit different than someone who's just graduating from college this this year, and the grades have consistently been a 2.6 GPA, and there's no explanation for it at all. And so I'm left wondering, is there a reason, or is this a student who just either doesn't have the academic potential to succeed in law school, or is just messing around. They're not giving me any reason to believe that it's anything other than messing around or not having the academic chops. All right. Well, good luck, Lisa. Thank you. Sounds like you're going to have a great application. Hi, Owen. Hey, how are you doing? So I I could give you my stats. The only thing is they're with Joseph having gone just recently, they're, it's going to be kind of redundant, I'm afraid, because they're very close. And I, it's funny because like I still see them talk and I thought, okay, I'm from New York and I'm looking at UT and those stats sound like mine. So I, I don't know if it's really worthwhile, but one of the things I wanted to um, ask that I haven't heard anyone bring up is graduate work. I'm wondering for someone like me, so I, I finished my bachelor's 12 years ago and 
my undergrad GPA is not that impressive. It's like close to a, it's a little over a three. Upward trend, senior year was kind of like a little bit, not not as upward, not terrible, but it just, it's a long story. But I'm wondering, like I do have a master's degree where my GPA is closer to like a three nine and it's from a fairly reputable program. And my understanding is, you know, obviously it doesn't supplant the undergrad GPA. And I think there's an attitude about graduate work that there's a lot of grade inflation. But I'm just wondering, like, how admissions committees tend to view graduate work, especially for someone who's been out of undergrad for a long time. Sure. I think, I mean, Jacob sort of touched on this before. I think it doesn't factor in to the school's medians, but it does show us that you would be capable of doing the work. So it matters in that way. And then it also just sort of adds more texture to you sort of as an applicant. So, you know, it's definitely not going to replace a stronger GPA, but it is going to take care of that sort of question of like, are you able to do the work? And then sort of having 12 years distance between you and when you were in college, like also just the the prior person that sort of tells us that maybe you've sort of, maybe you were immature in college, maybe you're sort of like growing into yourself, which is reflected in your 3.9 in graduate school. Yeah. And additionally, like you mentioned, Owen, that you went to a a reputable school. We're looking at the school. We're looking at the program. We're looking at how that fits within that larger narrative arc, too. So I can create the scenario of a student with very low marks because they went to a university with a very rigorous engineering program, and now they have a PhD in chemical engineering. I think that person's going to do fine in law school. Okay, And more so, even if they are at the bottom of the class, as long as they graduate, if they are going into intellectual property, they're going to be highly sought after, right? So we are looking at that information. We aren't factoring it into the medians for you know the reasons we just mentioned. The, the American Bar Association says the median calculation has to only be the undergraduate GPA. But within the context of actually reading the application, those are bits of information we take into account. Thanks, and good luck to you, Owen. Thank you. Let's go to Estrella. Hi, can you all hear me? Yeah, we can. Yes. Hi. So my name is Estrella. My stats right now are 389 GPA. And my last LSAT, my last official one I took during I had COVID. So I'm not going to even think about that score. But my last PT, PT was around 155. Okay, we'll use 155. What school do you want to look at? I'm looking, I'm from Texas. I'm looking at all of Texas, really. Okay. Should we choose another Texas school since we already looked at Austin? Texas A&M would be cool. Oh, hey, David, for the seven stage predictor, it looks like you still have early decision selected as an add-on. Oh, yeah. All right. So LSAC is giving you 21%. Seven stage is giving you 65%. And LSD is giving you 36%. So do you want to give us some context? Yeah. So I don't know what I would classify. Honestly, I think I'm a traditional student, but I did partake in a program when I was in high school where I took a lot of college classes. So I just graduated from a university last December when I was 20 years old. So I don't really have much experience. And I also was also in college during all of COVID time, really. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for me to join clubs or join student organizations. And right now I am working at a, at a law firm, but I'm just wondering how that goes into my soft tiers as well. I, I am a first gen student and I come from a very low income city here in Texas. So I'm, I think that would help me a little bit, but I'm more scared over not having as much experience as other people who are older than me. Jake, Susan, you want to weigh in about how these 
So sure. So sort of, as we said earlier, like being first gen and from low income, and as you said, like that would, that would be helpful sort of with your numbers. It's tough. Like COVID was really tough for a lot of students. And we definitely did see sort of less robust resumes and involvement because of COVID. You know, if there's something that you did that you can sort of fill out that time, whether it was volunteer work or anything in your community, that's helpful. But your experience now at the law firm, while working in in the law, like in some kind of legal environment is by no means necessary for applying to law school with someone who is 20 years old and maybe doesn't have a lot of sort of clubs that are relevant, you know, working in the law firm would be actually really important from an admissions perspective so that we could see as an admissions officer that you really had been exposed to the law and had really sort of thought through your decision to go to law school. And it's still something after working at a law firm that, that you want to do. Yeah. And I just want to briefly add on that. Typically, when I would open a student's transcript, if I saw that they graduated in two years, that would clue me in that probably when I look at the resume, it's really not going to be that robust. Because even pre-COVID, usually you're accelerating your way through undergrad because you took college classes in high school, because you're overloading on credit hours during the academic year, or you're spending your summers taking classes. And that just doesn't leave a lot of time for that personal development. So actually, you're doing exactly what Susan and I probably would have advised you two have done in some ways if if you told us, hey, the plan is to get through college at age 20, but then I still want to be really competitive for law school, what should I do? We'd probably say, well, hey, go spend that extra time that you just bought getting great work experience working at a firm. So that way, even if things don't work out this year, and I, I think that 36% isn't horribly inaccurate, you are still in a great spot then to take the LSAT again and reapply next year. And so I've, it's good to hear that you you chose a path that you did and you're getting that work experience to help balance out that undergraduate record. Well, good luck. It was, it was nice talking to you. And everyone, I'm afraid we are out of time, but LSD has a great chat. Seven Sage has a very lively forum haunted by our very own admissions officers. So we hope to see you there. And I wish all of you good luck. I think, Jaron, you're really good at these exhortations. You want to give us one more closing, <laughs> closing pep? Yeah. So in addition to working on LSD for the last three years, I've, I was also an academic counselor and kind of career counselor at, at Harvard University for the undergrads there while my partner was in law school. So that's how Dinan and I met. And that's really what brings me into the space. So I'm very used to talking to students going through this process or, or graduates going through this process. And I think that the biggest thing is to compare yourselves to others to the extent that it's healthy, um, but don't don't go further beyond that because everybody is unique. I know that we've all said that, but it, it is in fact true. And you know, feel comfortable reaching to go out of your way. There are students at Harvard Law School who they thought the day before they got in that there's no chance they would ever get in because of their scores, because of their sauce and everything. So Harvard's not the only school in the world by any means, but it's an example to say that just because the four people on this call say certain numbers in a program or they have ideas of what it was at their schools when they were working there, the, the big thing is really just to do do the best application you can do and, and really drive yourself to success in whatever way possible. And, and don't compare yourselves and see zero on a LSD you know, calculator that we threw together and say, like, there's no way I'm going to get in because that's just not true. Thanks, Jaron. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Jacob. And thank you, everyone who came. Good luck. Good luck, everyone. Yep. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Hi, it's JY again. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're studying for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevenstage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.